This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. This is Case Closed, one hour of old-time radio crime stories brought to you every Wednesday by RelicRadio.com. Our first story this week comes from Nightbeat. We'll hear the elevator caper, their story from May 8, 1950. After that, it's Sherlock Holmes and the 5th of November from November 5, 1945. Night Beat. Lucky Stone is the name. I'm the guy that writes that column that's buried somewhere in the middle of your examiner, called Nightbeat. They call me lucky for the same reason they call a fat man slim. Because the best you can hope for on a job like this is chronic bronchitis, rings under your eyes, and the fact that you're awake when regular folk are asleep. Sometimes the worst happens to you. A story grabs your heart and shakes it until it hollers uncle. A corpse in the dark alley is the business at hand. In the big city, a dead man is a pretty impersonal thing. But this one I had a special interest in. Because they wanted me to identify it. Night Beat stars Frank Lovejoy as... Lucky Stone. It was early morning when I walked into the county morgue. There was that same familiar ammonia smell stinging my nostrils. That gleaming tile. That cold, empty feeling you get. The way the morgue always swipes across your face like the tail end of a nightmare. The police lieutenant was waiting for me. He nodded for the attendant to pull back the white sheet. Well? Yes, that's him. That's Ted Carter. Okay, that does it. We had to get positive identification. You were the only one we could reach. Sorry I had to get you out of bed. Oh, that's all right. Guess that winds it up. Be seeing you. Thanks for the trouble. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you mean, be seeing you and thanks? What happens now? We go back and catch up on our sleep? I know you had a friendly interest in the kid, Lucky, but he got it the way all hoodlums eventually get it. He was going straight and you know it. You're getting sore about it. Who did it? Who killed him? Lucky, go in any book joint, any gin mill, look in any back alley, any flop house. Whoever you find there could have done it. Take your pick. Take my pick? Nobody talks, nobody remembers anything. In my book, it's murder by person to person's unknown. Just like that? Just like that. Maybe for you it's that way, but not for me, Lieutenant. I've known that guy since we were kids. I was lucky and he wasn't. I talked him into going straight and now he's dead for it. It's crazy to think that way, Lucky. Okay, it's crazy. Somebody didn't like the idea of his going straight. And if I don't find out who it is, I'm going to start having some lousy dreams, Lieutenant. And I'm a guy that likes to sleep sound. I walked away from the lieutenant like he had the smallpox and I'd never been vaccinated. When I hit the street, it was raining. The sky was gray and there was a cold chill in the air. I waited for a cab thinking that for the first time I hated this city. I hated it because somewhere in that rain was Ted's killer. What was he doing now? Sleeping? Having his morning coffee? Waiting for the first editions to come out and see how well he'd done? He'd have to look hard to find anything about Ted. Page six, ex-hoodlum found shot, period. When you're an ex-anything, that's a nice way of saying you're dead, brother, lie down. When a cab showed up, I went over to see Ted's girl, Joan. As soon as she opened the door, I knew she'd found out. Her face looked pinched and pale, and her eyes were red like she'd squeezed out the last tear. Lucky, why did it have to happen like that? I'm sorry, Joan. You didn't go down to... No. No, I couldn't. I understand. Who do you think did it? I don't know. He told me he was all through with the rackets. Well, what was he doing? Who'd he been mixed up with? He never told me anything. I never asked him. I believed him when he told me he was going straight. I'm going to find out who killed him, Joan. 
Look, Lucky, you and Ted lived in different worlds. He wouldn't want you to get hurt because of him. This is for the police, Lucky. I'm sorry. The police aren't interested. Then why should you... Because he followed my advice and now he's dead. Now, who was the last guy he worked for, Joan? Who got sore when Ted decided to go straight? I don't know, Lucky. I don't know. Joan didn't know. I went around to the old haunts, his former friends. They didn't know. The district attorney didn't know. The cops didn't know. Ted had kicked around in this city among all these people for 28 years. And now, suddenly, it was like he'd never lived at all. Then I remembered a little item from his old life. A little item with baby blue eyes and red hair. Laverne Clare. He'd gone with her before he met Joan, and even after he'd met Joan. I know he'd kept sneaking back to Laverne like a drunk trying to decide whether to spend his last coin calling Alcoholics Anonymous or buying a glass of Muscatel. I went looking for Laverne. She had the number four spot in one of those five-times-a-day shows on the untidy side of town. When I got there, I had to wait until the fleshy part of the entertainment was over, and then I went to her dressing room. Now, Ted uh, spent a lot of time telling me how crazy he was about you, Laverne. Yeah? He was a sweet guy. That was all right. He liked to tell me about the way you looked when you danced. Yeah, sure. Where's my drink? That bottle there. Pour me, will you? Oh, sure. Say one. I'll be one. Here you are. Thanks. <laughs> Who do you think killed him, Laverne? Look. Mr. Stone, you're a nice guy. So why don't you go back to your office and write your column about pretty things, Mr. Stone. Nice, harmless things. You don't want to get mixed up with Bailey or with that guy, Jerry. Bailey? I didn't say Bailey. Oh, so it's Bailey. The character that parlays pinballs and the diamond stick pins, number rackets, Bailey. So Ted knew something in here. Oh, I, I didn't say that. I didn't say anything. Get out of here. Right away. You understand? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm beginning to understand. So I had myself a lead, George Bailey. Only it was like going fishing with the hope that you'll be lucky enough to catch a trout and all of a sudden look who's eating your worm, Moby Dick, the whale. Before I told anyone else, I thought I'd go back and see John. I think I know who killed him, John. You do. I'm not positive, but it's a beginning. Who? George Bailey. Know him? Bailey? Who told you it was Bailey? You're getting pale, John, so you think it was Bailey, too. Listen, Lucky, stay away from Bailey. He's trouble. Yeah? I'll let you know exactly how much trouble. I'll see you later. Lucky. It's dangerous. Please be careful. The lieutenant told me anyone could have killed Teddy. He invited me to take my pick. I'm going over and see that cop. I've taken my pick. George Bailey. Lucky you surprised me. You really expect me to arrest George Bailey? On what charge? He's mixed up with Ted's killing. You know it and I know it. Outside of this Laverne girl, I got nothing to go on. You have one shred of evidence pointing to Bailey? Arrest him on suspicion. Sweat it out of him. Now, wouldn't I look fine against Bailey's high-powered shyster lawyers trying to make an arrest stick because some drunker dame shot her mouth off? Even then, she'd deny it if I put her up on the witness stand. So you don't want to touch Bailey? Look, get me one witness who saw him together. Find me one scrap of evidence, even circumstantial evidence. I'll arrest Bailey in a minute. You won't find anything. I know. I've tried. All you'll find is frightened people in blank walls. Bailey's had this town by the throat for ten years. No, I'm sorry, Lucky. I can't help you. But I couldn't stop. I was like a snowball somebody started rolling down a hill. I didn't know where I was going or what would happen when I got there, but I had to keep rolling. They've got a name for that. It's called a guilt complex, and I had it in technicolor. Ted was dead because he believed in me. I couldn't forget that any more than I could forget my name. Then I remembered my column. 
Sure, why not? The little poems to the first robin, the jokes about the smog, the stories of the happy winos that have to move over. I was going to work on Bailey in the only way I knew. And keep my fingers crossed that something would happen. What big shot racketeer sends for his aspirin every time someone mentions the back alley murder of Ted Carter? When is the district attorney going to get wise and change the address of Mr. B from a downtown penthouse to an upstate death house? Listen to this, boss. Huh? Stone's latest little offering. When are the police going to bring in the Carter killer? Let me see it. If they don't know who it is, I'll give them a hint. Think of Daly and reach for the letter B. How long is he going to get away with that? Hand me the phone. Sure. Hello? I want Lucky Stone. You got him. Say it only once, Mr. Stone. Hmm? Oh, you must be Bailey. I'm asking you to lay off. Real polite-like, huh? That's right. Real polite. Now, what's the good word, Mr. Stone? The good word? I got a whole sack full. You get a copy of the examiner first thing tomorrow, and you'll see him right under my byline. Now, listen, Stone. It'll be something like this. One of the local gendarmes going to knock on Mr. Bailey's door with a warrant for his arrest. <laughs> okay, he doesn't want a preview. So let him pay seven cents. Well, that was more like it. So Bailey was beginning to squirm. Well, 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 on him it looked just fine. I worked late on the column that night, giving Bailey enough needles to sew a circus tent. I was feeling pretty good. That guilt complex about Ted Carter wasn't hurting quite so much. I unlocked my door and stepped inside. I didn't have to shut the door. It was shut for me. I've been waiting for you, Mr. Stone. <laughs> well, as long as you're here, make yourself at home. You're a wisecracker, ain't you? Like your friend, Ted Carter. What do you know about Ted Carter? Oh, he was a regular car. Okay, what do you want? My boss sent me over to take a look at you. Your boss? Mr. Bailey. And you, your little boy, Blue, huh? <laughs> yeah, a wisecracker, all right. Well, tell that boss of yours I'll be dropping around to see him for an interview. Uh-uh. Huh? He don't want it that way. He sent me to see you instead. Yeah? He don't like people who don't pay attention to his telephone messages. He thinks you're very nasty yapping all the time that he had something to do with the Ted Carter killing. So? So, like I said, Mr. Bailey don't like it. Okay, Buster, now get out of here. Not right now. Mr. Bailey wants me to teach you a lesson. For this blackjack. Oh. Mr. Bailey don't like smart guys. <laughs> Wisecracker. Night Beat stars Frank Lovejoy as Lucky Stone. I woke up with a nice view of my ceiling. Sign outside the window flashed off and on. And every time it flashed on, it was like that punk of Bailey's with his blackjack testing his strength on my skull and doing fine. After a while, I crawled to my knees and worked my way over to the wall. And I climbed up the side of the dresser until I reached the phone. Operator? Operator, get me the police to... Uh, no, no, never mind, skip it. All of a sudden, I didn't want the police in on this. I wanted this to be a private party. All of a sudden, I wanted to feel a gun in my hands. Mm -hmm. 
I washed up, changed clothes, and found a cab. It was a quarter to eleven when I reached Joan's apartment. I had to knock a long time before she came to the door. She was rubbing the sleep out of her eyes. Lucky? Oh, come on in. Thanks, honey. What happened to you? Surprise party by the same people who surprised Ted. Wait, I'll get some bandages. Now, that's not why I came. No? When Ted quit the rackets, what did he do with his gun? He asked me to keep it. He said then I'd know he was on the up and up. Why? I want Ted's gun. What are you going to do with it? Uh, never mind. Just get me the gun. No, Lucky. You'll only get The me... gun, the gun. It's in the bottom drawer of the dresser. I'll get it. You're crazy. Here. Thank you. Where are you going? Wentworth Towers. Bailey has an office there. Lucky you are crazy. You're walking right into a trap. They'll kill you like they killed Ted. Well, if I don't go, Jerry will be coming around again. You see, either way, it's no good. At least this way, I say when. Wish me luck. Luck? Oh, you fool, you poor fool. You'll end up like Ted with five bullet holes in your back. When I got to the Wentworth Towers, it was almost midnight. The streets were deserted. The only sounds were distant traffic. The front door was locked, and the only light in the lobby came from the night elevator. An old man sat inside the elevator dozing. I pounded on the window. He reluctantly got to his feet and started walking toward me. He snapped the lock and pushed open the front door. Nobody in this building now. All the offices are closed. Uh, not all of them, Pop. I have an appointment with Mr. Bailey. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, I'll take you in. 24th floor. Come in. As the elevator rose, I dipped my hand in my coat pocket. The cold touch of the gun had the comforting sensation of a boy holding his father's hand. The elevator came to a stop on the 34th floor. The doors opened, and little boy Blue stepped out of the darkness. He had a gun, too. Only his was in his fist. Take us downstairs, Pop. Sure thing, Jerry. I want to see Bailey. We know, but Bailey don't want to see you. And keep your hands out of your pockets. Let me see what you got there. A gun. Pretty nice. Thanks. Don't mention it. I'm always handing out souvenirs. You go out first, Pop, and open the street door. All right, Jerry. I'll get it open for you. Is everything all right, Pop? Is it all clear? Why don't you go out there and see? Here, I'll help you. I shoved the kid out. I pushed the lever that slammed the door shut and started the elevator going up. I could see little lights blink on the instrument panel as I passed each floor. Bailey was on the 34th floor, and I was getting closer. Close. Close. All of a sudden, the elevator stopped. I was stuck between the 11th and 12th floors. I didn't have to be a mastermind to figure out what had happened... Little boy Blue and the old man had gone to the basement and switched off the power on my elevator. They'd bring up one of the other elevators and come after me. I began to feel like an animal trapped in a cage. Then I noticed the little door on top of the elevator. I climbed up on the old man's stool. I pushed the door upward and grabbed the sides of the opening. And I started pulling myself out. And now I was standing on top of the elevator, hanging onto a greasy cable that ran down from the roof of the building. Far below, I heard the other elevator with Jerry and the old man start climbing. I leaned forward to reach the door of the 12th floor. I couldn't reach it. The other elevator was coming up fast. As I lunged forward again, their elevator stopped at the 11th floor. I was trapped good. But as long as I was between floors, they couldn't get to me either. 
Little boy Blue figured it that way, too. Well, how are we going to get his elevator down here so we can get at him? Uh, you wait here. I'll go down to the basement and get him down to the 11th with the emergency crash. All right, but hurry. It was turning into a big evening. In a couple of minutes, I could feel my elevator inching down toward the 11th floor and me going right along with it, perched on the roof. Then I heard that shattering of glass. That meant the kid was using his gun butt to break through the little glass window in my elevator door so that he could reach in and spring it open. Ah, nice figuring. And now if I could figure a way to stay alive for the next five minutes, Mr. Einstein could move over. Where is he? How can he get out of here? Curtain. Jerry, look up there. Hmm? The trap door's open. He's at the top of the elevator. Yeah? Now that ain't playing. Yeah. <clears throat> How many floors in this building, Pop? Thirty-five. I've always wanted to run an elevator. Let's see how fast we can get to the roof. Shut up. Hold on to your hat, Stone. We were rising a mile a minute. All I could do was sprawl down and watch the roof of that building coming at me. Faster and faster. The top pulley singing around and around louder and louder. The roof was rushing to meet me like we were lovers from way back. Faster and faster, almost to the top. Almost. Now I know how those goats felt when that bomb went off at Bikini. The shock of the elevator smacking against the huge top springs shook me up like a bag of cement in a concrete mixer. But I was alive, which is always encouraging. Jerry stopped off on the 35th floor. Pop started taking the elevator down very slowly, and I was still sprawled out on the top of it, trying to get the cobwebs out of my brain. All right, Pop. You must be the original Indian rubber man, Stone. <laughs> Did make a fortune in the circus. Oh, it's nothing at all. I owe it all to the heavy underwear. Come on, climb out here. Well, how can I refuse such a nice invitation? Especially when you're holding a gun. Come on, back up, Pop. Elevator! Wait! Wait a minute, will you please? Who's that? Yeah, well, the cleaning room better put your gun away. Well, this is sure a break. I thought you'd be taking a snooze. All right, all right. Come on, get in. Yeah, Wait, let's I... all get in. It's hard to get an elevator this time of night. We rode down the four of us. No one said anything. The cleaning woman was half dead on her feet, her head bobbing half asleep. Oh, that lovely, innocent, tired old gal was saving my life. So long as she was with us. Now get out on the third floor, Pop. I'm going to the dressing room. Uh, three it is. Hey, uh, number three. Thank you. Good night, Pop. Good night, Pop. I get off here, too. No, you don't. This ain't the main floor. For me, this is the main floor. Stone! Come back here, Stone! I raced down the dark hall, past the cleaning woman who stared at me with her mouth wide open. In the distance, I saw what I was looking for, a little red sign that said stairway. My little pal was right after me. I got to the stairs, started down four at a time. He's right on my tail. Don't get in the way, Stone! I had to get out of here fast. This party was getting rough. I reached the main floor. Instead of going through the lobby and into the street, I ducked behind the cigar counter. The kid raced by. He went out through the front door looking for me on the street outside. I looked at the indicator over the night elevator door. The old guy was still parked on the third floor. I went to the stairs again and down into the basement. I needed an elevator, and there were several parked there for the night. I commandeered one. I was getting to be a regular genius with these elevators. Well, this was going to be the end of the little game. I was finally on my way up to Bailey. The 34th floor. The building tapered off up here. 
Around the small square hallway were six office doors, barely visible in the pale moonlight. Bailey was behind one of those doors. I tried the first door. Nothing. Second door was locked. Then a telephone started ringing inside one of the offices. I hurried over to it. Locked. The transom was half open, but no light showed through. Then, as I was about to turn away, I heard... Hello? Jerry, where the devil are you? The lobby. You crazy fool, he's up here. Yeah, in the hall, just outside the door. Get up here right away. Don't take any chances. As soon as your elevator door's open, kill him. All right, move! Now, what are your plans, Mr. Stone? That was a good question of Bailey's. What was I going to do? I couldn't break into Bailey's office. I didn't have a gun. He'd kill me before I could turn the doorknob. The indicator above the night elevator door was blinking fast. It was on his way up. The kid was in it, and the instant that door opened, he'd kill me. Right then, I started thinking of Joan. You'll end up like Ted with five bullet holes in your back. Yes, it was beginning to look that way. The elevator had passed the 17th floor, the 18th, the 19th. The little lights were dancing like a string of shooting stars. That kid was coming up fast. I was beginning to feel those bullets tearing into my back. You'll end up like Ted with five bullet holes in your back. With five bullet holes in my back, his back. I'd fought my way 34 stories to reach Bailey, and now I wasn't thinking about Bailey. You'll end up like Ted with five bullet holes. As the kid's elevator passed the 32nd floor, I started running for the elevator I brought up from the basement. I jumped into it and started down. I didn't want to kill Bailey anymore. I only wanted to get to Jones. Joan was waiting for me when I got to her apartment. She wanted the whole story, everything that happened. When I'd finished, I watched her relax a little. Then you didn't kill Bailey. No, John, I didn't kill Bailey. Oh. Police siren. Sounds like it's stopping in front of the house. Yeah. They came here sooner than I expected. Sooner than you... Lucky you've been lying to me. You did kill him. They've come to arrest you. You lied. I haven't lied, John. They haven't come to arrest me. They've come to arrest you. Me? For the murder of Ted Carter. What are you talking about? I didn't... Oh, but you did. You said the wrong thing tonight when I went out to get Bailey. What do you mean? You said I'd end up like Ted with five bullet holes in my back. How would you know about that? I... It wasn't in any of the newspaper stories. You never went to the morgue. There was no way on earth you could have known unless you killed him. Be right with you. That's the police, Joan. Any more questions? Yes. Don't you know what it's like to love somebody? I was willing to do anything for him. Scrub his floor, wash his clothes, give him a good home, anything. But he always kept going back to Laverne. The way I loved him, do you think I could let any other woman? All right, boys. All right, I'll let you in. I want you to know one thing, Joan. No matter what you thought, Ted really loved you. You see, Laverne represented his old world. But with you, he was going to have a new life. You remember that, will you? Okay, boys, she's all yours. That's the story of Ted Carter, murdered in the name of love. Okay, if that's what love does to you, I'll string along with Pinochle. <laughs> I'm just feeling low tonight. Because murder is only a symptom of what we're suffering from. The disease is selfishness and jealousy and greed. Too many of us have decided that the golden rule may have been all right for Grandpa... But nowadays, the fashionable thing is dog-eat-dog. 
But then I think, how can that be? How can any of us hurt or hate or even be indifferent to those around us when in this whole crazy world all any of us ever really have is each other? Well, that does it for tonight. I called Bailey, and I told him I'd made a mistake. But then he'd made him too, so it was a Mexican standoff. It's a nice job. You finish up, you yell for the copy boy, you grab for a second-hand sandwich and a tired cup of coffee, and then you start all over again. Because tomorrow you've got another night beat. You don't know where the story's coming from or where it's going to take you. But you know it's somewhere out there in the dark waiting for you. I'll tell you all about it next week. Copy, boy. Beat is written by Larry Marcus and produced by Bill Karn. Music is composed and conducted by Frank Worth. Frank Lovejoy can currently be seen in the Motion Picture Academy nomination, Home of the Brave, and the Universal International production of South Sea Sinner, and is featured in the forthcoming Warner Brothers production, The Rock Bottom. This episode from the life of Sherlock Holmes will be transmitted to our men and women overseas by shortwave and through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Petri Wine brings you... Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his good friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And if you ask me, the best way to listen to that story is to do it with a glass of port wine right handy. Petri California Port. No kidding, that Petri Port is just swell for any time good friends get together to talk things over. You couldn't ask for a more delicious wine. Why, just looking at the deep, rich red color of that Petri Port tells you that here's a wine with a flavor that comes right from the heart of sun-ripened grapes. If you haven't ever tried Petri Port, why not get a bottle and have a glass after dinner tomorrow night? It's a perfect after-dinner wine, you know. And share that port with your family and your friends. And don't forget, when you serve Petri Port, you can serve it proudly. Because after all, the name Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wines. And now let's keep our weekly appointment. Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Draw up a chair. Thank you. That's it. By the way, do you know what date it is? Um, November 5th, isn't it? That's right. In England, it's known as Guy Fawkes Day. Have you ever heard of it? It's something to do with a gunpowder plot, isn't it? Yes, Mr. Bartell, it is. And as Sherlock Holmes and I had a very unusual adventure on the 5th of November many years ago, it seems appropriate that I should tell you about it tonight. Before I begin, I think it might help you to appreciate the true flavor of the story... If I tell you a little about the origin and the customs of Guy Fawkes Day. That's a swell idea, Dr. Watson. Well, my boy, on November the 5th, 1605, exactly 340 years ago today, King James I was about to attend the opening of, of Parliament when a plot was discovered to blow up the House of Lords during the ceremony. And the chief conspirator was Guy Fawkes, I suppose? Yes, he was. He was captured in a vault immediately below the House of Lords, a vault full of barrels of gunpowder. Of course, he and his fellow conspirators were executed. And ever since then, November the 5th has been known as Guy Fawkes Day. Well, uh, how's it celebrated, Doctor? Well, it's a great time for the youngsters, Mr. Bartell. They black their faces, throng the streets, begging for pennies, and build bonfires in which to burn effigies of Guy Fawkes. These effigies are life-size dummies, stuffed with straw and dressed in old clothes. The children parade them in the streets, chanting rhymes. Well, now, let me see. Please to remember the 5th of November... Guy Fox Guy, hit him in the eye. <laughs> the kids must have quite a time. Sort of like um, Halloween, aren't I? Yes, not unlike it, my boy. Well, now that I've told you something about the customs of Guy Fox Day, I'll get on with my story. It began just before lunch, I remember, on November the 5th, 1899. The day was foggy and cold, and Holmes and I 
was seated each side of a blazing fire in our Baker Street rooms. From outside, we could hear the sound of voices laughing and singing. Suddenly, Holmes rose and crossed to the window, opened it, and looked out. Then he turned to me and spoke. Children having a great time, Watson, aren't they? Yes, it cost me a shilling worth of pennies to, to walk here this morning. Has it occurred to you, Watson, that the gunpowder plot offers very promising material to the speculative mind? In what way, Holmes? I say it's confoundedly chilly in here. Don't you think you might uh, shut that window? Sorry, old chap. As I was saying, the gunpowder plot offers very promising material to the speculative mind. I made something of a study of the historical records of the case. There is more than a little evidence to suggest that King James was never in any real danger. Never in any danger? Well, what makes you say that? Knowledge of the proposed dastardly scheme came to light early. That James Stuart, King of England, the possessor of a shrewd and diabolical mind, used the spectacular discovery of the plot to try and bolster his waning popularity, as well as to justify increased religious persecutions. Well, that's the first I've heard of it, Holmes. I dare say, old fellow, but it's true just the same. I'm afraid James Stuart, King of England, was an unscrupulous tyrant. Come in. Oh, yes, Mrs. Hudson? There is a gentleman to see you, Mr. Holmes. He said it was very important. He asked me to give you his card. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Oh, ask him to come up, please, will you? Aye, sir. Who is it, Holmes? A gentleman with a remarkably fine sense of timing. Read his card for yourself. Let's have a look. Mr. James Stewart. Great Scott, that's... It's an extraordinary coincidence that he should arrive just as we're talking about James Stewart, King of England. Come in. Mr. James Stewart. How do you do, Mr. Stewart? My name is Sherlock Holmes, and this is my colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Mr. Holmes, you've got to help me. I'm walking about in mortal fear of my life. You've got to help me. Mr. Stewart, I suggest that you sit down. I'll do anything in my power to help you, but you must compose yourself first and tell me quietly what it is that's frightening you. How can I compose myself when I may be dead within a few hours? No, 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 Mr. Stewart. I'm a doctor. I really think if I were to give you a sedative that you'd find... How can you talk of sedatives when I... My heart. Doctor. My heart. All right, all right. Now, here, let me help you into the sofa. There you are now. Imagine that's it. Would be yes, Holmes, and I'll give him some digitalis. A fellow with a bad heart like this shouldn't allow himself to get so excited. Here you are, Mr. Stewart. Drink this. No. That's it. That's it. And now this, Mr. Stewart. What is it? It's digitalis. Uh, very well. There now. Feel better, sir? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Yes, I do. Uh, you're right. I shouldn't get so excited. My heart can't stand it, you know. Watson, is he well enough to talk, do you think? Yes, if he doesn't excite himself again. I'll be careful, Doctor. I'll take it quietly. Uh, Mr. Holmes, when you saw my card just now, did it strike any responsive chord? <laughs> Naturally, sir. Who could fail to be intrigued when a James Stewart calls to see one on Guy Fawkes Day? Uh, it isn't just coincidence that my name is James Stewart. I've got royal blood in my veins. People know of it. And that's another reason they're out to kill me. They're jealous of my heritage. Every instinct I have is a royal one. Uh, no, you gentlemen know that falconry is a king's sport. And my greatest hobby is the breeding and the training uh, of falconry. Mr. Stewart, please, Mr. Stewart. Owing to the state of your health, I suggest that you be as economical as possible in your explanation. In fact, I think it might be better if I were to question you. Uh, very well, Mr. Holmes. Now, you say that your life is in danger. What evidence do you have to substantiate that claim? Uh, my cousin, Guy Falconry, has threatened it. Uh, you see, Mr. Holmes, he and I are the only heirs to a wealthy uncle... His fortune will go to the surviving heir. If I were dead, Guy would inherit everything. It seems to me, Mr. Stewart, that you should have applied to Scotland Yard for protection. I did, Dr. Watson. Only a few days ago, I saw a certain inspector, uh, Lestrade, I think his name was, and he laughed at my fears. Oh, Lestrade. <laughs> and he laughed, did he? Well, then in that case, there may be something in your story, sir. <laughs> You say that your cousin has threatened to kill you. Has he indicated the method he intends to employ? Aye, uh, he has. And it's a devilish plot. Guy has a bitter, twisted sense of humor, gentlemen, even when he's planning as dastardly a thing as a murder. I am James Stewart. He is Guy Falkenby, which is near enough to Guy Fox. Today is the 5th of November, 
and he's planning to blow me up. <laughs> oh, come, 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 sir. You can't expect us to believe that. <laughs> but it's true. He warned me. Uh, and the celebrations that are going on in the streets of London today would make a rare cloak for his activities. Uh, I must confess, Mr. Stewart, that I find your story most unconvincing. All your evidence appears to depend on conversations held between you and this cousin of yours. You have no facts, sir, to substantiate your claims. But I have. Then please let us hear them. I live at 23 Cavendish Square. A week ago, the house next door to me was let to a new tenant. Almost immediately, workmen became very active there. They were digging in the cellars, Mr. Holmes. I could hear the sounds of picks and shovels through the walls. Digging in the cellars? That does sound significant, doesn't it, Holmes? Extremely. Did you observe any other activities of the workmen, Mr. Stewart? Aye, uh, Mr. Holmes. Vans have been delivering large packing cases to the basement during the last two days. Mm -hmm. I know what's in them, too. It's gunpowder. I tell you, they're planning to blow me up today. No, 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 no. Steady, sir. Steady, steady, steady. You mustn't excite yourself again. What shall I do, Mr. Holmes? I think, sir, it would be better for you to rest here for a while and then go to a nearby hotel. I would suggest the uh, sharp spread. And wait there until you hear from us. And where are you gentlemen going? Watson and I, after donning suitable disguises, will visit the house adjoining yours in Cavendish Square. I think an examination of the cellar there might prove most illuminating. <laughs> This must be the house, all right, Holmes. The empty packing cases are still by the foot of the basement steps. Come on, Watson. Let's go down and explore. Pardon my soul. I feel a little self-conscious in these clothes. No need to, my dear chap. You look a most authentic inspector of plumbing. <laughs> if anyone challenges us, uh, you'd better let me do the talking, though. I think my accent might be a little more convincing. Shh. Listen. I can't hear anything. Exactly then we may reasonably assume that either the workmen are observing the Guy Fawkes holiday or that their work is done. Come on, let's try this door. It's unlocked. Yes. Huh. This is too easy, Watson. We must be prepared for a trap. Come on. I've got my revolver handy if there's, if there's any trouble. I don't use it until I tell you to. Remember, we're supposed to be plumbing inspectors. It's pitch black in here. I can't see a thing. Strike a match. See if you can find a gas jet. Strike a match when the cellar may be full of gunpowder. Can't take the risk, old chap. Oh, here's a gas jet. I light it. That's better. Now we can see a little. Uh huh. I think the workmen have completed their job. See that new wood forming a crude door in the corner over there? Where does it lead to, do you suppose? Let's find out. Also unlocked. And here's a miner's lantern. Waiting conveniently for us on this ledge. Oh, this is ridiculously easy. Now I'm sure it's a trap. I like the lantern. Great Scott, it's, it's a tunnel. Yes, it's a tunnel leading into Mr. Stewart's house next door. Let's explore it. Look, Holmes. Look at the barrels. That they're full of gunpowder. Undoubtedly. We'll observe the fuses as well. Yes, the complete equipment for another gunpowder plot. I can't believe my eyes. What a fantastic plan. But how could the murderer be certain that Stuart would be killed in the explosion? I think that's easily answered, Watson. Remember Mr. Stuart's bad heart? In his present state of apprehension, an exploding firecracker would be enough to kill him. Oh, I suppose so. Hello? Hello? What's this lying on the floor? Curious? Funny strip of silk with a little ring on the end. Let me see it, Watson. Aha. Uh -huh. This seems to be familiar. By Jove. I believe it's a Jess. A Jess? What no, sir? The last piece of evidence necessary to confirm the conclusion. Come out of there! Keep your hands above your heads! I've got a revolver! Right, you are, Governor. We ain't done no harm. Now remember, Watson. I'll do the talking. Archer, come. Well, well. You're a comical-looking pair. What are you doing in there? Uh, me and my mate got a message to come over here and see to the plumbing, mister. Plumbers, eh? Do you have any identification? Yes, sir. Here's my badge. 
We're inspectors for the London County Council. Oh, that's all right, my man. I saw the basement door open and I, I thought burglars might be here. <laughs> You're the owner of this house, sir? Yes, but my agent let it recently to some tenants who've been behaving rather queerly, I'm told. So I came round here to see what was happening. Uh, if you're the owner, sir, perhaps you can give me some uh, facts for me records. Gotta fill me records, you know. What do you want to know? Well, your name, please, sir. Falkenby. Guy Falkenby. Uh, look here. Uh, Alfie. Alfie, uh, hold your nose. What did he say? Uh, nothing, sir, nothing. He's got bad hiccups. Had him for, well, I've had him for months now. Can't stop him. Alfie, here, give me a pencil, will you? <laughs> Thank you, Alf. Now, sir, your name is Guy Falkenby. Uh, what's the name of the, uh, the tenant? This house is let to. There are three of them. Oh, do you know their names, sir? Got to have them for me records, you see. Yes, the names are Winter, Rokewood, and Keynes. Uh, I... Oh, yes. Uh, Winter, Rokewood, and Keynes. That's right, sir. <laughs> Sounds as if they might be a firm of solicitors, don't they, sir? Well, perhaps they are. I haven't met them. Uh, just one more question, sir, and then I needn't bother you no more. Well, what is it, my religion or my grandmother's maiden name? <laughs> no, sir, no, nothing like that. I just wondered who lived in the house next door on that side. We've had a complaint from there, too. Their pipes is bunged up. My cousin lives there. His name's James Stewart. Mr. James Stewart, eh? Oh, much obliged, sir. Me and my mate will be going next door, then. Come on, Alfie. No, I'm not surprised what? his pipes are bunged up, as you so graphically put it. He's a great one for practical jokes about the house. As a matter of fact, he's planning one of them tonight. Uh, oh, well, that's no concern of yours. By the way, my man, what's your name? Uh, Nivet, sir. Tom Nivet. Come on, Alfie. We've got work to do. <laughs> I wish you'd tell me what's going on. Why have we taken this cab back to Baker Street? Get out of these clothes. They've served their purpose. Now there's more serious work afoot. Well, I'm still confused about our interview with Guy Falkenberg. Why did you say your name was Tom Nivett? What touch of vanity, old fellow. Vanity? How do you mean? Well, consider the names in this case so far, Watson. James Stewart says that he's been threatened by Guy Falkenberg. A name, as Mr. Stewart points out, not unlike Guy Fawkes. Do you recall the names of the three tenants that Mr. Falkenby gave us a few minutes ago? Yes. Winter, Rokewood, and Keynes. But what's that got to do with it? A great deal, my dear fellow. Thomas Winter, Ambrose Rokewood, and Robert Keynes were the three men executed with Guy Fawkes in the original gunpowder plot in 1605. Good Lord, but where does Tom Nivett, the, the name you gave yourself, fit into the fixture? Thomas Nivett was the Westminster magistrate who arrested the conspirators. Since the would-be murderer has such an academic knowledge of the original plot, I thought I'd let him know that he was up against an opponent worthy of his steel. We'll hear the rest of Dr. Watson's story in just a few seconds. Just about time for me to remind you that if you want a wine that's sure to please the ladies, you can't miss with Petri California Muscatel. That's because Petri Muscatel is a golden wine with one of the most luscious flavors you ever tasted. Did you ever taste a big, plump Muscat grape that's ripened in the sun? If you have, then you know what to expect when you taste Petri Muscatel. It's a wonderful wine. Perfect after dinner and swell when company comes. Just remember that, won't you? Petri Muscatel. Well, Doctor, you and Mr. Holmes were certainly having yourselves quite a Guy Fawkes day. Uh, what happened when you got back to Baker Street? We quickly changed out of our disguises and back into our ordinary clothes. I was still pretty much in the dark, as usual. And I kept questioning Holmes as to our, as to our next move. He was in a state of suppressed excitement. And it was obvious, as he spoke to me, that he was anxious to be off. What does God there's so much work ahead of us. What do you mean, don't dawdle? I'm not dawdling. I'm dressing as fast as I can. What's our next move, anyway? Well, we must split our forces. Let's get hold of my band of street urchins, the Baker Street Irregulars. I'm going to surround Mr. Stewart's house in Cavendish Square, and they'll be invaluable for that purpose. Well, what do you want me to do? Go to the Shaftesbury Hotel and collect Mr. Stewart, then return with him to his house and wait me there. I shall join you as soon as I've rounded up the Irregulars, but I must warn you, don't leave Mr. Stewart for a moment. Don't let him out of your sight until you see me again. Of course I won't, Holmes, but, uh, well, uh, I must say, the idea of all that gunpowder in the cellar doesn't make me feel any oh, too have happy. have faith in me, old chap. Have huh? faith in me. You know, I wouldn't expose you to any danger if I could avoid it. And I assure you that I shall join you and Mr. Stewart very shortly. You have your revolver? Yes, of course. Good. And, uh, give Mr. Stewart this revolver, will you? 
Tell him that I insist that he carries it. I fear that his own has probably been tempered with. Right you are, Holmes. I'll see that he has it. This is a strange business, I must say. That guy Falconer seemed such a decent sort of fellow. Yes, he appeared to be a most amiable fellow, didn't he? This is indeed an unusual case, Watson. We're up against one of the most sinister and twisted antagonists that we've ever met. Well, old chap, I'm leaving now. I'll join you soon. And don't forget, stay close to Mr. Stewart. Stay very close to him. Dr. Watson, I wish your friend were here. No, no, no. Don't get so excited, Mr. Stewart. You'll be here any moment now. You've still got the revolver that I gave you? Yes, it's in my pocket. But what's the good of a revolver if there should be an explosion? Answer me that if you can. Now, now, you must have faith in Mr. Holmes, sir. He's arranging now to have this house of yours surrounded by his band of street urchins. They'll see that no one gets to the cellar next door to light the fuses. A bunch of children. How can they do anything? Uh, You don't know the Baker Street Irregulars, Mr. Stewart. And it's a perfect day for them to operate. As black-faced boys begging for pennies, they'd pass unnoticed anywhere. I hope you're right. But I have a premonition, Doctor. There's going to be a tragedy. I know it. Now, take it easy, sir. Remember your heart. You're in splendid hands when Sherlock Holmes is on the case. Here he is now. Holmes, I say, I'm glad to see you. You received your visitor yet? Visitor? We've seen no one. Then be on the alert. I've just been questioning the boys surrounding this house. A few moments ago, some children pulled a small cart up to the back door. Cart containing a life-sized dummy. My irregulars thought that it was an effigy on its way to a bonfire. Oh, why shouldn't it be, Holmes? I have reason to believe that it's someone visiting you in disguise, Mr. Stewart. A visitor who is mounting the back stairs at this very moment. <laughs> You've got to stand by me, Holmes. You've got to protect Don't me. Don't worry, sir. All right. Come in. Look! Look at that apparition! Great Scott! <laughs> Guy Fawkes dummy. A dark lantern in his hand and... And it's walking. And also talking, I trust. Keep away from me. I got a revolver. You won't give me one, I'll take two. The better for me and the worse for you. It's Guy Falkenberg. Keep away from me, do you hear? The better for me and the worse for you. All right, then. I'm going to fire. Yeah, me, Mr. Stewart, the revolver I've provided for you seems to be unloaded. How very odd. Well, what in fun is all this about? You've just witnessed an attempted murder, Watson. Murder? What are you talking about? This is a game. James and I had it arranged, the whole thing. You may have thought it was a game, Mr. Falkenby, but I assure you that your... Grab Mr. Stewart, Watson. He seems to be leaving us. Leave me alone. Take your hands off me. I... Ah, 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 my heart. Here, help. Oh, help me oh, put him on the sofa. Oh, oh. That's it. Oh. I'll get him some digitalis. Look, I don't want to appear unnecessarily stupid, but will someone tell me what this is all about? With pleasure, Mr. Falkenby. Your cousin had planned one of the most fantastic murder plots that I've ever encountered. He came to us with the story that you had threatened his life. But that's ridiculous. I'm very fond of him. Of course it's ridiculous. The whole plot was ridiculous. He leased the house next door, had a tunnel dug, and gunpowder and fuses planted there. Even entered the name of the tenants as Winter, Rokewood, and Keynes to give the apparent plot a further authenticity. You mean my cousin was the real tenant? Certainly he was. However, he was clumsy enough to drop that uh, piece of silk with the wire ring on the end that you found in the cellar, Watson. thing you called a jess. And what's a jess? It's a strap that goes round a falcon's leg to which its leash is fastened. You will remember that Mr. Stewart informed us that falconry is his hobby. And it therefore indicated that he had been in the cellar and consequently must have known about the whole plot. And all he was trying to do was to build up in our minds the belief that his cousin was trying to kill him. Exactly, my dear fellow. Had we believed him, of course, he could have shot you just now, Mr. Falkenby, in apparent self-defense. Good Lord, what a fantastic plot. I I still can't quite believe it. Mr. Falkenby, why are you dressed as a Guy Fawkes dummy? Well, it was James's idea. He said that that he was going to to dress up too and that we were to go round the bonfires tonight and frighten people by by appearing as live dummies. But the last message he sent told me to come up here, that that we'd play a practical joke on a couple of friends of his. Did he provide you with the costume that you're wearing? Yes, as a matter of fact, he did. Have you searched the pockets for any weapons? No, but I will. All right, and while you're doing that, I'll examine this dark lantern. How's your patient, Watson? Well, I've given him some digitalis. Uh, now I'll get him some brandy. I can't find anything in the pockets. Here's the answer, my friends. Look here. Inside the lantern is a dagger. Your cousin planted it there to substantiate the claim that you were trying to kill him. Had his plans worked, you would have been dead, Mr. Falkenby, before you could have told us the truth. Here, come back here, Mr. Stewart. James! He slipped out of the Confound door. Confound it! He's making the heart attack. Come on, Watson, after him. 
Comes the Lord Mayor of London, chums. Excuse me, please. I'm trying to find a friend of mine. Most important. Holmes, where are you? Can I hear my tongue? I hear you calling me. Out of the way, please. I'm coming, Holmes. Why don't you send your postcard? You you got away from me in the crowd. Got away from us. Well, we'll never find him in this bar. Not Walpole. He's a dangerous man. There's no knowing what he may do. Where the irregulars? Ah, there's Wiggins. Wiggins. Hello, Mr. Holmes. Wiggins. Dr. Watson. Did you see a man run out of that house a few minutes ago? No, Governor. Perhaps Charlie did. Hey, Charlie, come over here a minute. It's Mr. Holmes. All right. I bet Charlie didn't see anything, though. He's got some stubby girl with him. Hello, Mr. Holmes and Dr. Watson. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Charlie. Did you see a man run through this crowd a few minutes ago? A tallish man with a gray mustache? Yes, I did. A man came running out of the house over there. That's the house. Where'd he go? He ran down toward where the shops are. And he's still out doing he did. The one we are going to burn in the bonfire. I tried to stop him, but he got away. Holmes, Holmes, look up there on the roof. There's a figure. By Joe, I believe it's James Stewart. That's the man. He's the one that stole our dummy. He's standing up on the roof. He's going to jump. If he does, he's going to line in the bonfire. There he goes. He is jumping. <laughs> right into the middle of the fire. It's awful. He'll be burned to death. Don't worry, Wiggins. There wasn't a man who fell into the bonfire. What do you mean? From the gyrations that the figure performed as it fell, my dear Watson, I'm convinced that Mr. Stewart threw the stolen dummy to try and put us off the track. Then Stewart's still up there. He is, Watson. Come along, old boy. It's up on the rooftops for us. Up on the rooftops. Let me help you up. Can you reach my hand? Yeah, I got it. All right, then. Up you come. Come on. That's it. Fire escapes must be designed for for chance. Keep your eyes skinned, old fellow. Stuart's a dangerous man. Might be hiding behind those chimney stacks. Come on. Upon my soul, this is a strange place to be on Guy Fawkes' night. Yes, a comprehensive case, Watson. Starts in a cellar and ends on a rooftop. Look, Holmes. By the parapet there. The crumpled body of Mr. Stewart. Looks to me as if it... Yes. He's dead, Holmes. Well, it's not surprising. The effort of tearing the dummy up here and throwing it, combined with his own state of excitement, were too much for him. Well, quite frankly, I can't say that I'm sorry. No, he planned a murder. If it hadn't been for you, he would have succeeded. An extraordinary case, Holmes. Yes, old chap, and one that should long make us remember the 5th of November. By Joe, yes. Please to remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgotten. Well, Doctor, as you boys would say, that story was a bit of exciting, what? Yes, and even now I sort of lose my breath. When I remember climbing that fire escape. You know, Doctor, those two fellas certainly went out of their way to celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. Now, take me. When I got a little celebrating to do, I, well, I like to do it quietly. Some friends, a glass of port. Yeah, Petri port, of course. What else? <laughs> Leave it to you. No matter what the occasion is, you can somehow make it a perfect occasion for Petri wine. How do you do it, old fellow? <laughs> Don't ask me how I do it. You mean, how does the Petri family do it? How can they make such swell wine? Well, the answer is experience. The Petri family has been making fine wine for generations. And ever since they first established the Petri business way back in the 1800s, they've handed on down from father to son, from father to son, the fine art of turning luscious, sun-ripened California grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. That's why when you want a wine for any occasion, before dinner, with your meals, or after dinner, you can't go wrong with a Petri wine... Because Petri took time to bring you good wine. And now, Dr. Watson, what Sherlock Holmes adventure are you going to tell us next week? An old favorite, Mr. Bartell, a story that concerns strange music that was heard in a lonely house in the English countryside. And of the living death 
that stalked there. I call it The Adventure of the Speckled Band. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure is written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in this Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. Music was by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studio. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. That's it for Case Closed this week. Hope you enjoyed our show today. You can find more from Nightbeat, Sherlock Holmes, past episodes of Case Closed, and everything else Relic Radio at the website relicradio.com. If you'd like to help support this and all of the shows, help keep them coming every week, donate through the website or visit donate.relicradio.com. Your support makes all of this possible. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Wednesday with another episode of Case Closed. <laughs>